0: Um, I, if I haven't met you, my name is Parker Moore, and I serve as the pastor of Cleveland Road Baptist Church. And uh, 30 years ago, I moved to this town, and I uh, started attending church here by no choice of my own. Uh, I was 11 months old, and so um, I've listened to, to more sermons in this room than any other room in on the planet. And uh, for most of those years, I listened to sermons from the book of Matthew, seven years to be precise. I don't remember many of them because I was a child, but now I have the privilege of preaching through Matthew at our church in Athens. And so I want to invite you, if you haven't done so, to turn to Matthew chapter 5. We're going to be looking at one verse today. That is verse 4. Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Before we look at our text, let me tell you about a paradox. A paradox is a seemingly self-contradictory statement which is, in fact, true. So, Lightning McQueen is given advice from Doc Hudson in the movie Cars, and that advice is, you have to turn right to go left. The Bible is full of paradoxes. Matthew 10.39 says, Whoever finds his life will lose it, and whoever loses his life for my sake will find it. Matthew 20.16 says, The last shall be first, and the first shall be last. Even the verse preceding the one we're going to look at today, we see that the path to godly wealth comes through spiritual bankruptcy. Matthew 5, 3. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Now we're in Matthew chapter 5, verse 4. Jesus has just started his earthly ministry, and he is preaching on a hillside by the Sea of Galilee. This is what most consider the most famous sermon ever preached. And from Matthew 5 through 7, we get the Sermon on the Mount. But what we get in the first 12 verses are what's called the Beatitudes, the Beatitudes. And the word Beatitudes simply means blessings, blessings. And they come as a result of kingdom living. I want to point out at the outset that it is so important as we read the Beatitudes and as we study our passage today... Uh, that we don't look at these Beatitudes as a means of attaining righteousness. In other words, don't try and do these things in order to earn God's favor. Uh, These eight blessings are promises to the people of God. But not only are they promises, they are also descriptors of members of Christ's kingdom. And each of these descriptions, they come uh, with how to live, and they promise true happiness. That's what the word blessed means in Matthew 5. Uh, Literally translated, it means happy, happy. So our text this morning is verse 4. Blessed are those who mourn. Or to translate it literally, happy, happy are those who mourn. And so we see another biblical paradox. Happy are the sad. Matthew 5, 4. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. At the outset, I want us to acknowledge the radical idea of valuing and embracing sorrow. In many ways, it is contradictory to conventional wisdom. Isn't it true that we live in a society that does everything in its power to eradicate sorrow and to encourage thrill or fun? Uh, We think of enjoyment in many ways as the end goal of what the world can offer its citizens. We see this especially among the younger generation. Sometimes we present an idea, and the response we get is, well, will it be fun? Uh, We tell our children, put your jackets on, we're going outside. And they ask, is where we're going fun? Even in the church, we have decided to attract people under the pretense of fun. We tell people all the time at Cleveland Road, come to Thursday Night Bible Studies. It will be fun. Uh, Commercials are an endorsement for fun. Did you know that the word muse... Literally translated means to think or create or inspire. Yet society's attempts of fun are a muse or to be without thinking or creation, uh, amusement parks. That is the intentional attempt of society to remove sorrow and to increase thrill. Don't think, just enjoy. How about cruises? I love cruises. But isn't it true that when you get to your departure port, everybody is, is pale? They have their Hawaiian shirt on, they've got their cargo shorts, they're smiling, and they're anticipating the fun that they're about to have. You see the joy on people's faces as they can finally escape reality, because what comes with reality is often Sorrow. Uh, You hear it every morning as you wake up on a cruise ship. This is your cruise director. We hope you have a fun day today. And some patrons on cruise ships drown out their sorrow through alcohol or gambling. Uh, I tend to do this through karaoke and endless buffets. But however you choose to do this, cruises are meant to increase your fun. If you've been on a cruise, you know that when you get off the ship you will never see a more miserable group of people than those that have to go back to reality. They are more tan, they have put on a few pounds, but they are depressed. And they're depressed because they have to go back to their jobs and their families and reality and what comes with reality. Sorrow, sadness, amusement parks, cruises, and dare I even say church ministries often seek to make fun and entertainment the end goal. So let's ponder this question. Why is sorrow such a negative thing? Why do we use the phrase, drown out your sorrows, as if it needs to be eradicated? Well, I think it's because sorrow isn't comfortable. It doesn't make us feel good. And as creatures motivated by our feelings, sad is bad. Friends, I think the call of Christ in the Beatitudes is to reject not sorrow, but to reject the world's rejection of sorrow and to embrace sorrow and to live with appropriate sadness. Jesus says, happy are the sad. Now, this word happy isn't referring to a, a temporal or trivial happiness, like getting on a cruise ship or riding a roller coaster. This is this is referring to a lasting happiness, what some might call joy. Jesus says, one of the keys to happiness is receiving and embracing sadness. Now, I want to be clear. I'm not saying that fun or excitement or laughter or thrill are inherently bad things. Ecclesiastes 5.19 says this, everyone also to whom God has given wealth and possessions and power is to enjoy them and to accept them and to accept his lot and rejoice in his toil. This is a gift of God. So I'm not saying that enjoyment equals sin. What I am saying, is, and what I think Jesus is saying here, is that embracing sorrow is good. And the exclusive pursuit of that which numbs or eradicates sorrow may not be the course that Christians are called to walk. So my challenge to us today is, is simply this. Embrace sorrow. Embrace sadness. Uh, in fact, this idea of embracing sorrow is seen elsewhere in scripture. Uh, Did you know that James 4, 9 says this? Be wretched and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to mourning and joy to gloom. Or Luke chapter 6, verse 25 says, Woe to those of you who laugh now, for you shall mourn and weep. Ecclesiastes tells us that there is a time for everything, a time to weep and a time to laugh, a time to mourn and a time to dance. So I want to suggest that maybe we've missed it as a society. Maybe I've missed it as a pastor, and maybe we've missed it as the church universal. Uh, We've promoted something that God doesn't, at least not to the degree that we have, and we have rejected that which Christ calls us to. Blessed are those who weep. Will you bow with me in prayer? Father in heaven, as we seek to unpack this verse today, would you make us a people who embrace sorrow embrace contrition of heart, and turn to you for comfort. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. If we were honest, we would acknowledge that there are many types of sorrows manifested in the hearts of those present today. Uh, I think we could all see that mourning takes shape in a number of different ways. So I want to be careful to point out that Jesus, when he says, blessed are those that mourn, for they shall be comforted, that, that he does not mean that to be an all-inclusive statement. Uh, there are types of sadness, you know, different forms of mourning, which are sinful, therefore merit no comfort of Christ. Uh, what I mean is this. Uh, we will be mournful and sorrowful for things that are sinful, and for that, God He promises no comfort. I want to highlight three sinful styles of sadness for which God promises no comfort. Number one, uh, there is a sadness which comes through covetousness. A sadness which comes through covetousness. Uh, There's a sorrow that comes with not getting what our neighbor has. In 1 Kings 21, King Ahab goes to Naboth and says, I really like your vineyard. Can I have it? And Naboth says, no, this has been in my family for generations. And 1 Kings 21.4 says this. So Ahab went home angry and depressed because of what Naboth had told him. He lay on his bed, just staring at the wall, and refused to eat a thing. Uh, We see an egregious display of covetousness-induced sadness in the Old Testament when Amnon, the son of David, desires to sexually defile his sister, and he becomes so overwhelmed with sorrow that he becomes sick. Uh, friends, my point is this. When we pitch a fit because we don't get what we want, God does not promise comfort. Think of your own child. If Haddon came to me and said, Dad, can I have this? And I said, no. And then he proceeded to pitch a fit and waterworks started to come. He began to mourn. It'd be foolish for Audrey to look at me <laughs> and say, blessed are those who mourn for they shall be comforted. God doesn't promise comfort to those that covet. But secondly, the second sinfully induced uh, sorrow is that which comes from getting caught. All of us have experienced this. We do something we know is wrong, we are found out, and we shed tears. But those tears have nothing to do with what we did and everything to do with the consequences we're about to face. There is no comfort guaranteed to the soul of the sinner who is simply sad at the consequences of what they've done. It's not a biblical sorrow. That is a selfish sorrow. Uh, third, there is a sorrow which leads to condemnation. Do You ever talk to someone, perhaps they've messed up, and they start by saying, I am just so bad, I'm such a terrible person. Uh, friends, that is not a genuine poor in spirit. They're throwing themselves a pity party. And there's self-condemnation, and usually they're either looking to you to come alongside them and say, oh, you're really not that bad, you're okay, or they think that beating themselves up will help solve the problem. And I think we see this form of self-condemnation most clearly in Judas Iscariot. He sells Jesus for 30 pieces of silver, he comes under conviction, he expresses sorrow, but it's not a godly sorrow which leads to repentance, it is a worldly sorrow which ultimately leads to condemnation and his demise. So those are just three ways that I think sinful sorrow is manifested for which God promises no comfort. But now for the main body of our message, I want to highlight four categories of sorrow for which comfort is promised. Now, this list isn't comprehensive, but I think most sorrows will fall under one of these four categories. So, number one, if you're taking notes, I would suggest that it's appropriate to feel sorrow, and we will be comforted when we feel sorrow over the loss of a loved one. Over the loss of a loved one. Uh, When we think of mourning, our minds often go to funeral homes or gravesides, because that's where we see mourning displayed most clearly in our society. Now, from science, we understand that there is something physiologically helpful about the release of emotions through tears. Crying is a God-given gift to release tension in our bodies. But not only is it good for us physically, mourning is appropriate for us spiritually. First, Th- First Thessalonians 4.13 says this, But we do not want you to be uninformed, brothers, about those who are asleep, that you may not grieve as others who have no hope. Implied in this verse is that Christians will grieve. And there's nothing wrong with that. Paul is not saying, stop crying. Paul is saying that our tears will be different than the tears of the world because we have hope in the face of death. Now, what is this living hope? Well, he continues in the next verse, 1 Thessalonians 4.14, because we believe that Jesus died and rose again, even so through Jesus, God will bring with him all those who have fallen asleep. In other words, we have the hope of the resurrection of the dead. And as Christians who mourn the death of a friend or family member, and I'm going to put parentheses here, if the deceased knew Christ, and that's a big if, but if they were born again, we have this comfort. Second Corinthians 5.8 To be absent with the body is to be present with the Lord. Psalm 116.15 Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. You see, there is an understanding through scripture that the soul of the believer is now residing with Christ and that is cause for comfort in the midst of sorrow. Now, we will likely still cry, uh, but we don't cry for them because they are with Christ. We cry because we miss them and we can't talk to them anymore and we can't share meals with them anymore. I, I felt this tension this past year of feeling comfort, but also hope in the midst of comfort at the loss of my grandfather. Uh, Bill Strain was just shy of 91 years old. And for the last few years, it was our prayer that God's will would be done with his life. We knew that his quality of life was poor. We knew that to depart and to be with Christ is far better, Paul tells us in Philippians. But when he died, I still felt a sense of sorrow and sadness. And I wasn't told and I wasn't feeling this urge to suppress that sadness. What, what did I feel? I, I felt the need to turn that sadness to joy by looking at Scripture and being reminded of the fact that my grandfather is now in the presence of Christ. So for those of you that have loved ones that die, if they're in Christ, take comfort in the fact that they are with Jesus and that you will see them again. Uh, But here's the reality. Not everyone is fortunate enough to know that their loved one is now with Christ. In fact, I would argue that most in this room, the next time you mourn the death of someone you know and love, you probably won't have the hope of eternal life. And if I'm just being honest, this situation is a lot harder. It's a lot more difficult. Um, so just as an aside, by, by way of practical application, can I just say that active evangelism and consistent prayer are means that God has given us to reduce the number of loved ones who die outside of Christ. Let me repeat that. Active evangelism and consistent prayer are the means that God has given us as believers to help reduce the number of loved ones who die outside of Christ. So let's get to work. Let's pray for loved ones that know not Christ. Let's be fervent in sharing the gospel, the good news that because Jesus died and rose again, we can now have eternal life through putting our faith in him. Regardless of how fervent our prayer life is and how tenacious our evangelism efforts are, we will still experience the real intangible loss of those who don't know Christ. So how is God's comfort manifested in those types of situations? Well, I think the answer to that question also helps us address this second category of sorrow. And so I'm going to kind of lump that category, that scenario, into this second category of sorrow Uh, for which God promises comfort, and that is general sorrow, which is unavoidable this side of eternity. Uh, This is point number two, general sorrow, Um, and, and it's unavoidable. Now, the severity of this sorrow, it varies wildly from person to person and from situation to situation. This type of sorrow comes from the death of an unsaved friend. This type of sorrow comes from a devastating romantic breakup. Uh, general sadness comes from not getting into the school you desired or getting the job you thought you needed this sorrow comes as a result of being spoken poorly about or because your parents are going through a divorce Uh, sometimes you don't know why this sadness comes you're just sad in general there is a general discouragement and despondency which affects many in this room and often we don't know where it comes from sometimes we're just sad And when we're asked, why are you sad? We have no particular reason. My hero in the faith struggled with this. Charles Haddon Spurgeon was a man deeply affected by spiritual discouragement and depression. Now, one of the things that led to Spurgeon's sadness was a tragic event at the Metropolitan Tabernacle uh, when some uh, outsiders came into a large gathering of thousands of people and shouted from the back, fire, fire, and everyone in the room stood up and rushed out, and in the stampede, over five people were killed. That really, that really affected Spurgeon's heart, but even years later, it's reported that he would sometimes have to stop in the middle of preaching because he was crying because he was so sad. His wife, Susanna, writes about that in her autobiography. Maybe you've been through a really dark and deep season of depression. Maybe you're not sure why you're sad, but you are. Friends, I want to encourage you, do not drown out your sorrow with temporal fun or attempts of the world, but embrace what this verse says. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. So in what ways are the generally sad person comforted? For the one that loses someone that knows not Christ, for the one that is experiencing sorrow that they can't seem to get over. Well, listen to these words from Psalm 34, 18. David writes, The Lord is near to the brokenhearted and saves the crushed in spirit. There is comfort that comes to those who experience general sadness through the tender and compassionate embrace of the Father. Or, Romans 8:18 8, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing to the glory that is to be revealed to us. Or Revelation 21:4 He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. Uh, listen to this quote from Spurgeon himself. He said, your sorrow itself shall be turned into joy. Not the sorrow to be taken away and joy to be put in its place, but the very sorrow which now grieves you shall be turned into joy. God not only takes away the bitterness and gives sweetness in its place, but turns the bitterness into sweetness itself. End quote. Let's move on. Next, I want us to see the appropriate nature of mourning and the comfort guaranteed when we mourn over the sins of others. When we mourn over the sins of others. We see this type of mourning done poorly when Jonah is asked to go to Nineveh, right? He doesn't think that the Ninevites deserve the grace of God. And so rather than mourning over their sin and giving them the message of the gospel, he flees and God puts him in the belly of a big fish. But I think we see this sadness for others done well when Jesus mourns over Jerusalem in Matthew twenty-three thirty-seven. He says, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the city that kills the prophets and stone, those who are sent to it. How often would I have gathered your children together as a hen gathers her brood under her wings and you were not willing. See, Jesus wept over the sin of Israel. Can I just say a word to parents of unbelieving children? It is okay just to mourn over the sin of your child. Can I just say a word to the young people, perhaps the students here? I think it is good to feel sorrow when classmates reject Christ and pursue the world. Friends, I think for all of us, there is an appropriate nature of mourning that comes when we consider the thought of abortion. When we look at the sins of others, the sins of the world, we should feel sorrow. And for that sorrow, there is the promise of comfort. See, there is, or at least there should be, in the life of a believer, an appropriate nature to sadness when we're faced with the sins of others. Uh, Paul writes this in Romans chapter 9. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I wish that I myself were accursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, according to the flesh. See, there is sorrow that Paul feels for his Israelite brothers and sisters who have rejected Christ. So I would argue that if we, as a people of God, are not moved emotionally or mourning the sins of others, then that may be a demonstration of a calloused heart to the things of the world. When we look at spiritual depravity, when we're unable to mourn over it, it probably means that we're not going to be very passionate and effective evangelists because we don't see sin as that big of a deal. But when we look at the sin of the world and the sin of others, and we're moved to mourn over it, we are often moved to action. And that action is often to spread the gospel and to show the love of Christ. So take comfort, friends, in the fact that mourning over the sins of others often leads to prayer and evangelism. And prayer and evangelism often leads to conversion. That is one of the ways God comforts those who mourn. But I think we would also be helped by the words of Revelation 21.5 which says, And he who was seated on the throne says, Behold, I am making all things new. Also, he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. So, friends, take comfort in the fact that an all-sovereign God is using every action, good and evil, every bitter thought, every tragedy even, and redeeming it for his glory and for our good. I think the sovereignty of God produces comfort in the heart of the believer that mourns over the sins of others. Let's move on to our fourth and final point. What I believe to be the primary application of this text. It is appropriate, dare I say, necessary to mourn over our own sin. We've highlighted the need to be heartbroken over the sins of others, but what about us? Uh, I have to pause here. Because we're going to spend the rest of our sermon talking about something that centers on the believer's approach to sin and to the unbeliever. I think there's a danger in hearing a message over sin and thinking, if I just become sorry enough, or if I just weep enough, or if I do enough, then God will be pleased with me. Let me explain that all of us, without exception, are infected with something called sin. This is an offense against God, which separates us from God. And because of our sin, Romans 6 tells us that the wages of that sin is death. And so as sinful creatures made in the image of God who have spurned his name and turned away from his will, we are now at enmity with God. And there is nothing, the Bible tells us that there is nothing we can do to earn favor with him. Isaiah 64 tells us that all of our righteous deeds are as filthy rags in the eyes of Christ. So what are we left with? Well, we're left with the gospel message that God loved sinners enough to make a way of reconciliation by not telling his creatures do enough and weep enough and pay enough and do penance. But he said, I will do everything needed to reconcile sinners to myself by sending my only begotten son to take the place of ruined sinners. That's what we see in the gospel, that Jesus Christ, God incarnate came to earth to bear on his body, in his flesh, the sins of those who would trust in him. And on the cross, that wrath, the death that we deserve, was poured out upon the spotless son of God. And so we read in Second Corinthians 5.21 that he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us so that, you gotta catch this, we might be the righteousness of God. It doesn't come through mourning. It doesn't come through being Pious. It comes through Christ. And the invitation to all who are outside Christ, who are unbelievers, is to repent. That means to turn away from sin and turn to Jesus. And to believe that what was done on the cross, what was done three days later through the resurrection, is enough to save us from our sins. Now when God looks at us, (laughs) he no longer sees us in our sin, but he sees us through the lens of his spotless son, Jesus, so that we who were once far off have been brought near. If you're here today and you don't know that message to be have a saving, effectual presence in your life, then, then I would say, mourn not and run to Christ. But for those of us who are believers, here is the call, blessed are those who mourn over our sin, for we shall be comforted. Uh, sin has this uncanny ability to harden our hearts, doesn't it? And the further we get into sin, the tougher our consciences become and the less inclined to sorrow over sin we become. Not only that, but sin makes us stupid. (laughs) It tells us lies and it promises things that it can and will never deliver. Sin makes us reckless in that we start to pursue that which is contrary to what God says is best for us. Sin makes us foolish in that we start to prioritize things in life that God says are not worth it. Like, recognition, and academics, and finances. They, instead of Christ, start to become our chief goal when sin takes over. Not only that, but not only does sin make us stupid, but it also makes us selfish, right? Everything we do in the heat of the moment of sin happens for our own pleasure and our own good. So, North Shore Baptist Church, do you see your sin and do you mourn over it? I'll tell you what happens often as we grow to look like Christ, we actually start to see our sin more than ever. Here's another paradox for you. The most holy people most clearly see their own sin. In fact, it's often... Uh, it's, It's often those of us who write sin off as no big deal who end up suppressing our sin so that we never actually mourn over it. Sometimes we tell ourselves that sin is okay because we're not as bad as the people we know. Sometimes we tell ourselves that sin's okay because we have Jesus and we sin so that grace may abound. Sometimes we suppress our own sin because we just don't want to acknowledge it. It's just too much for us to bear if we took an honest look in the mirror and looked at our own lives in accordance with scripture. Some of us have convinced ourselves that acknowledging our sin would cause more problems than just ignoring. It. Friends, it is a dangerous place to be when we think lightly of our sin. And as believers, there has to be an honest confrontation with sin every day. It is the call of Jesus to mourn over our sin, but we'll never start to do that unless we start to acknowledge it. So, church, answer these questions. Do we mourn over our sin? When was the last time we thought about our sin and had our emotions moved to sorrow? Um, We cry a lot, don't we? At least I do. (laughs) I cry at movies. I cry when my favorite sports teams wins a championship. But I'll be honest, I don't often cry over my own sin. Does that mean that my sin isn't there? Absolutely not. I think I just don't view it properly. Perhaps I'm doing something wrong because the call of Jesus is blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are the broken. Blessed are those who see their sin and want nothing to do with it, and experience sadness because they know that it separates them from God. You want to know how to have happiness? Well, it is to take an honest look at your sin and allow it to lead you to tears. Not tears of condemnation, but tears that ultimately lead to repentance. So how can I, or how can we, get to a place of mourning over our sin? I think there are two things that are going to help us. Number one, we have got to do some soul searching. Uh, We've got to do some digging in our own lives. Those sins in our lives that we like to suppress or that which we think nobody else wants to know about, we have to allow them to come to the surface. Now, this may come through personal confession, which I hope it does. Uh, This may come through you getting caught, which will happen, right? Nothing goes unseen in the eyes of the Lord. But I think one practical way that we as Christians can do this is by pulling a a trusted brother or sister aside and saying, hey, what? What sin, and this takes a dose of humility, what sins do you see in my life that you think the Lord needs to work on me in? And then as they start to talk, your pride is going to be like this, "Mm, but you don't understand. But as we hear what they say, and as the spirit speaks through them, and as we start to see our sin more clearly, then we will be more apt to have sorrow over it. So do some soul searching. Go to a brother or sister and find out ways in which you are consistently falling short of the glory of God. And then secondly, the way we do this, I think, is we become more aware of the holiness of God, right? In many ways, we have turned God into a better version of ourselves. And so in our minds, to him, sin is, it's merely distasteful. It's just like, oh, yeah, not the best, but I can deal with it. The Bible describes God as completely set apart and completely blameless and completely holy so that sin is not merely distasteful. Sin is repulsive in every way. Habakkuk tells us that God cannot even be in the presence of sin. So the stench of sin to God, it it makes him vomit, right? The thought of sin to God makes him angry. And what's true is that those of us with sin in our lives, when we don't confess it and when we don't mourn over it, there creates this chasm between us and the Lord. Now we're not talking about a salvific chasm here, which can be bridged only by the blood of Jesus. We're talking about a daily closeness that we don't feel with God when sin reigns supreme in our lives. Because when God cannot be in the presence of sin, and then we embrace sin as a way of life, and we don't mourn over it, and we don't <laughs> repent of it, then God can have nothing to do with us. He doesn't, he, like, it's, it's not that he doesn't want to, he can't. He is holy. And so I think when we grasp the fact that God is infinitely holy and wholly set apart from us, we start to mourn over our sin more regularly. We start to see, oh my God, that which I have embraced and loved is actually a cause of of disturbance in the closeness that I feel with the Lord. So the the promise is this, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. My fourth and final point is mourn over your own sin, but I don't want to end there. I, I want to remind us of the promise that comes with mourning of our own sin, and that is what? they shall be comforted. They shall be comforted. King David does something very stupid. He seduces and sleeps with a woman that is not his wife. Remember this story? He impregnates her out of wedlock, then he tries to cover it up by lying, and then ultimately murdering her husband. And while he is suppressing his sin, God leads Nathan, a prophet, to come to David and to tell David a story about a wealthy man who had a huge flock who went to a neighbor who was poor and he took his only little precious ewe lamb. And David is enraged with anger and he says, that man deserves to be put to death. And Nathan says, you are that man. David's sin is before him clearly and he goes on to write Psalm 51. Friends, if you're wondering how can I mourn over my sin, Psalm 51 gives us the model. I would invite you to turn there actually. Psalm 51 as, as we read the words of David as he mourns over his own sin. He begins in verse 1. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions is ever... And my sin is ever before me against you. And you only have I sinned and have done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Uh, Look down in verse seven. He writes, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. Wash me and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear. This is comfort friends. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. Friends, here's a call for comfort. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me, but restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold with me, uh, hold me with a willing spirit. Friends, that is the model for those of us that mourn over our sin. So I want to conclude with this. As we mourn over our sin, let us not turn to things which will satisfy us temporarily. But as we mourn over our sin, let us turn to God. And in turning to God, we will find two realities. The first is this, and this is more objective. God has dealt with our sin totally and finally at the cross. When we turn to God in the midst of mourning, we are reminded of Romans 5, 8, that at just the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. When we turn to God in the midst of our sin and we mourn over it, we are met with the overwhelming reality that God no longer holds our sin against us, but has now forgiven us in Christ. That is the objective reality. But even when we stare objective realities in the face, we still feel that sorrow and we still long for comfort. So then we come to the other side of comfort, which is promised as we turn to God. And that comes through God welcoming us back into his presence through closeness and communion with him. Uh, We see this in the prodigal son. He goes out, he squanders everything he has. He comes to the end of his self. He is is sitting with pigs eating the mire, and he realizes, I am objectively a son of a king, but I don't feel that right now. What would happen if I returned to God in the midst of my sin? And so the prodigal son goes back, and what he is met with is not resistance or condemnation or, ooh, you stink, go clean yourself up, or... Uh, let me think about it. He is met with a father who hikes up his robe, runs after his son, embraces him and says, where have you been? Right? Where have you been? I, I've been longing for you to come home. Kill the fatted calf. Here, take my ring, take my robe. That is the approach of God when he is approached by sinners who mourn over their sins. He doesn't say, uh, give it a couple weeks, go clean yourself up. I need to think about this. He says, my son or my daughter, come, come. Your, your sin has been put away objectively. Now come feel the embrace of a father that loves you and cares for you. So we read the words, blessed are those who mourn. Don't suppress that. Embrace it. Turn to God and he will bring comfort. that's all I got. (laughs) Let's pray. Father, we are so thankful for your word. Uh, We are thankful that despite our sin, because of what Jesus has done, we now have access to the father. Uh, We thank you, Lord, that your word in Hebrews tells us that we can now draw near to you in times of need because of what Christ has done. So for those of us today newly uh, f- are freshly aware of our own sin, may we turn to you and may we find comfort both in the cross and in the embrace of a father. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.